You're listening to the preaching ministry of Redemption Bible Church in New Braunfels, Texas, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's word without apology. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you seek to worship Christ, walk with Christ, and work for Christ, all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, please visit redemption.bible. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you soon at one of our upcoming worship services. Let's turn to Colossians 1, uh, verses 15 through 20 is where we're going to be. And so, it, you know, it's interesting that this happens to be the Sunday that, uh, that Living Hope is launching, and he's there um, because it was just five years ago in October, so next month, just five years ago, that we launched. And we were a plant church from San Antonio, and they were about the same age, and they were a plant church out of Austin. And so you can see how this multiplication keeps happening you know, as we fulfill the mission of Jesus Christ to make disciples wherever we go, uh, baptizing and teaching all that he commands. And so we're going to continue to do those same things, but it, it just takes me back to five years ago to that launch Sunday. And, and in the October following that, one year later, um, I actually got to preach this text um, at our kind of one year, around our one year anniversary time. And so it's my great honor to get to stand in front of you and do that again today. Um, but I remember, you know, back then uh, talking about, I had seen this meme on the internet, and I'm sure you're familiar with what a meme is, where you get a picture of someone and there's a caption under it, and it's kind of funny. So this meme is probably like for theology nerds, theologian, it's all black and white, and underneath it, it says, Jesus is the answer. Now, what was the question? And What's funny about that is if you've been around like Sunday school or small groups or anything like that for, for any length of time, that kind of becomes a joke when we're studying scripture, we're studying theology, we're doing something where we're thinking a lot about God and how this all fits together and how it works. And there will inevitably be some kind of question that we all look around at each other and like nobody's got the answer. And then someone will go, Jesus, it's Jesus. Jesus is the answer. And so that's where this kind of comes from, and, uh, and you're right. Jesus is the answer. All of Scripture points to him. He is the culmination. He's the pinnacle. He's what it's all about, and so he is the answer, and that's what we're going to see today in our text. So in Colossians chapter 1, they're beginning in verse, uh, verse 15. If you'll follow along with me, uh, I'll read this for us. The scriptures say this, it says that he, that's Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is the, he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is God's word for God's people. And so as we 
look at that text, that those verses of Scripture, there's a lot there. And I don't want us to be intimidated by the seeming difficulty of what Paul has written. So we're going to lay out a little bit of context to help us begin to kind of work our way through this passage. And so it starts with Paul. He's, he's writing the church at Colossae, as well as their neighboring church at Laodicea. And so when you think about where that is on a map, if you think about modern-day Turkey, and that's actually where... Uh, Pastor Eric is right now in Istanbul. He's working uh, in his job there. Uh, but modern-day Turkey is the region that we're talking about. And so in this region, there was at that time a new heresy developing, and it's called Gnosticism. Have you ever heard of that term before, Gnosticism? It means knowledge. It means to know. It's kind of the, the root of the word there. And it's still around today. Uh, actually, all of the ancient heresies from kind of the apostolic era and the early church as they formed, they're all still very much alive today. But Gnosticism, is, it's a false gospel, and it masquerades as an ancient form of Christianity. That's kind of what they claim. Well, this is more ancient. There's special knowledge here that you don't know about, and so we want to share this with you. And that's how you can identify it, this special secret knowledge. It's, uh, its proponents, its adherents, they usually talk about that kind of version of Christianity, and they tout books like the Gospel of Thomas, and the Gospel of Judas, and the Gospel of Mary, and the Gospel of, I guess, just about anybody else except for the actual Gospels. They weave stories of hidden agendas and church conspiracies, theories that sound a whole lot like the Da Vinci Code, and not really much at all like following the Lord. And so a big part of what Gnosticism teaches, uh, really the kind of what's at the core of it, besides the secret knowledge, is that essentially although God is good, they would claim that his creation is not. That God is good, but what he created is not. And they would claim that Jesus was created, that he was a man, and so he cannot be deity, he cannot be good, that he was simply created. In other words, it taught that Jesus is not God. And on top of that, uh, it was teaching that angels should be worshipped. And so in response to this, the Apostle Paul writes the churches in that region. That's where we get this book today. He writes the churches in that region to crush any kind of Gnostic nonsense that was bubbling under the surface. And in doing this, he lays out uh, one of the Bible's most concise, most theologically dense, and most powerful descriptions of who Jesus is right here in these verses in Colossians. So the devastating at first, because there's so much packed in, but let's stick together as we go through this, and hopefully we'll see uh, Colossians 1 with more clarity. I hope that we'll begin to understand why, beginning in verse 10, our text today is so commonly titled The Preeminence of Christ. You may even see that kind of subtitle, uh, depending on what version, uh, what translation of the scriptures you have, uh, The Preeminence of Christ, meaning that he's first. He's the most important. He's the highest. And like we're going to see today, he is the answer. So what, what was the question then? 
Well, I'm so glad that you asked. We're going to think about a few of big of life's big questions, the big kind of questions about existence, uh, existential. Right? You might hear me use that word. Uh, these really big questions that we have. And the first one here that kind of everybody asks is, what is God like? It's a good question, right? And everybody asks it. Agnostics, Christians, Muslims, Jews, even atheists who would deny the existence of God still have to wrestle with, if God exists, what would he be like? And the world is full of opinion Our pagan roots, the pagan roots of Western philosophy, have taught the world that God is like us. And if we think about it long enough, using logic and rationale, then we can reason our way to understanding what God must be like. And if we don't care for that God, then we can simply make up another one, or we can take the one in our mind and maybe just modify him a little bit or replace him with one who satisfies our taste. Eastern philosophy has taught the world that God originates in us, and if we clear our minds of thought and we meditate deep within ourselves, that we can transcend the spiritual plane and become one with the divine. Both of these philosophies are man-made And they really draw their essence from the fall. In Genesis 3, the serpent told Eve, when you eat the fruit, you will be like God. But we know what happened. Sin entered the world. And so this fallen world looks to mankind to answer the question of what God is like. The world's image of God is subjective changing, it's perverted, altered. But God has been kind to us. God has given us an answer that is objective and pure. We have Jesus. He is the answer. So let's look together. Look now at verse 15. Let's read it again. He is the image of the invisible God. Stop. Right there. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. You want to know how God loves? Look at Jesus. You want to know how God forgives? Look at Jesus. He is the answer to what God is like. Because he is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3 says this. It says that, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Now, there is a lot to be learned about God from all over the Bible. The Old Testament is filled with revelation about God's nature and character. And we can pour over all 66 books of the Bible systematically gathering all the bits and pieces of information about God and then analyzing them and trying to put them all together to see what we can learn about uh, God's character. And hopefully there is time for all of that. But that's not the best starting place. If you're looking for a place to start, 
Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus because he is the firstborn of all creation. He's the image of God. He's the firstborn of all creation. See that there in verse 15. Let's look at it again. Read with me. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, this has created some problems, a little bit of controversy. You see, in this verse, the word firstborn sadly has been misused by Gnostics, those folks I talked about earlier, Mormons, uh, Jehovah's Witness, and other false Christian groups that claim, aha, Jesus was... And sadly... Brothers and sisters, this is a misunderstanding which the enemy has used for centuries to mislead people. The passage is not saying that Jesus was created, but rather that Jesus has positional authority over all that was created. Meaning that he holds the place of honor, prominence, rights, and luxuries as the firstborn son. It's a a positional thing. If we think about the culture of biblical times, who among the children takes first place in prominence? Firstborn. Which one holds the first place in authority? Firstborn. Which one has the first place over inheritance? Firstborn. So Paul, he's brilliantly using uh, firstborn as a metaphor so that our human minds can understand in human terms the divine right of Jesus to be first place over everything. So in summary, verse 15 means that Jesus is the image of God and he will take a back seat to nothing. And so you see, we have to properly orient things. So what's first for you? Do you need, do I need to check the order of our lives? Absolutely. Because the scripture doesn't say things that we tend to say, like work comes first. Or how about, oh, 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 me first, me first. It doesn't say those kinds of things. It's not family first, others first, safety first, ladies first, America first. Jesus comes first. He is the first among all things and the image of God. So look to him when you wonder what God is like. Jesus is the answer. There are other big existential questions that we people ask. Romans chapter 1, and if if you haven't read Romans in a while, I would... uh, implore you to read Romans at least chapter 1 today, you know, maybe this afternoon. It's so applicable to just uh, kind of where things are headed culturally and, and even just understanding how to navigate and how to understand um, what's going on around us. But Romans chapter 1 shows us that deep down, everyone, whether they'll admit it or not, really knows just by looking at creation that God is there. They suppress the truth. And so, even though there is a sinful suppression of truth, everyone still wants to know, still asks the question, and has to answer it somehow, where did all of this come from? 
From evolutionists to astronomers to flat earthers, everyone looks around wanting to know how did it all get here. And one of the times in my life that this hit me the most, I was in the Navy for a little while and uh, I was on a submarine. And so sometimes submarines, not very often, but they surface usually to go in port or out of port. And most often that's at night. And the bridge of a submarine isn't much bigger than this pulpit right here. It doesn't hold very many people. One, two, maybe three you could jam up there. And, uh, and at night, you imagine a black ship, middle of the ocean, and there's no lights on this thing. You got a, like a little red light and a little green light on each side. But other than that, there is like zero light. And I don't know if you've been in the desert or maybe out in the middle of the ocean, if you've been somewhere where you can actually see like all of the stars that are visible. And there is no way, I am convinced there is no way that someone doesn't look at that and go, where did all of this come? How did we get this? And know, as Romans 1 tells us, that the creation tells us that there is a God. So the question is universal. Everyone asks it. And whether mankind will rightly admit it or not, the answer is universal as well. Jesus is the answer. Look back at the beginning of verse 16. It says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Jesus is the means by which everything that is something came to be. And I think that sometimes, even we Christians, we tend to forget, you know, when we talk about creation, um, you know, and we know that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and that's straight from Genesis 1-1. We forget about the Spirit hovering over the waters. We forget about Christ's role in that, and we think of the Father only. So that's Genesis 1-1, but let's not forget John 1-1 that begins like this. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. You see, the Father has chosen to be glorified through the Son. And so by Jesus, he created all of these amazing, complicated, beautiful things like time and light and galaxies and love and you. It's everything. Jesus is the answer to how it all got here. But there's more. Look at verse 16 again. Look at the second half this time. What does it say there? He created the visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So not only did he create everything, but it all exists for him. And this is so important to remember. This is the reason that you should memorize this passage. It is all for his glory. The text says thrones or dominions. So we might ask the question, does this encompass the, the governments and the rulers? Of the world? You bet. 
bet it does. The world's empires and democracies, our heroes and our tyrants, have all existed and will continue existing, whether good or bad, for the purpose of the display of Christ's glory. It reminds me of Pastor Blair's sermon, uh, and this was quite a while back, but uh, I, I would recommend that you go online and look it up. The, the series title was God Minute for Good. And if you were here during that series, um, you would remember that it was Genesis 42 through 50. And what we did there was we walked verse by verse through the story of Joseph seeing so clearly how through all of the evil that was perpetrated against Joseph, with all of that evil, there was never a moment when it was outside of God's control or plan. And it became crystal clear when Joseph says there in chapter 50, verse 20, he said, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. And so it is with the governments of this world. There is never a moment that Christ does not reign and that his plans are not accomplished. He is patiently executing through the means of humanity that which will ultimately magnify him the most through the redemption of all creation. It is all for him. Even this next piece. Look again at verse 16. See there where it says invisible? What's that? We've talked about the visible, right? We just got talking, done talking about those rulers, the thrones of kings, the dominions of empires. But now Paul goes beyond a worldly application of these powers, and he says invisible and follows it with a particular phrase here. Rulers and authorities. This phrase pops up several times in the Bible and is used consistently to communicate the same idea. And we see it twice in Colossians, once here where we are, and then again in chapter 2. So turn there with me. Let's go to chapter 2. Just the next page, maybe the same page for you. And we'll begin in verse 14. And, and let me paraphrase verse 14. It's saying that for the believer, our debt, our sin was nailed to the cross in Christ Jesus. Then in verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The rulers and authorities here are not the Roman guard. They can't be. They thought that they had won. No, the rulers and the authorities that Paul addressed here are invisible. They are the supernatural, satanic, demonic forces of evil that seek to thwart God's plan, and they fail. Jesus won. When he said, it is finished, then the price was paid. And when he rose from the grave, death was defeated. And so by Christ's cross, these rulers and authorities, these forces of darkness are disarmed and put to open shame. And these are the back there, back to chapter 1, back to verse 16. It says, whether thrones or dominions 
or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He created them. He didn't create them evil. Don't go there. The Bible doesn't say that. It says that he created them and they rebelled. Jude 1 1, uh, verse 6 calls them angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. They are rebels and they intend harm, but they cannot win. Verse 16 says they were created by him and for him. So even in their rebellion and their wickedness and their plots and their schemes and the pain that they cause, they could not win at the cross and they cannot win in your life. They belong to him. Memorize this passage. Take comfort in the authority of Jesus. Worship Jesus. He is the answer. Another question that the world wants answered is who's in charge around here? Life is hard, is it not? The longer you live, the more you realize how true that is. We experience highs and lows. We know what it feels like to be on top of the world, and we know what it feels like to hurt and grieve. We know what it's like to plan and work and strive, and to think, finally, things are going my way. And then life happens. And in the blink of an eye, our plans, they crumble, and things have to change. So I've experienced this. I'm sure that many of you have. Was my, uh, my parents, my mother and her husband, my stepfather, they live up in southern Oklahoma, and uh, in their horse people, um, not like a centaur or like, you know, I'm cowboys, the rodeo cowboys. Um, that's everything revolves around rodeo. We didn't watch football or baseball or basketball growing up. It was rodeo, rodeo, rodeo. I was lucky to get to go to school. And, uh, and they're ranchers, outside people, right? Um, and had lived and worked all of their life. Uh, every job that they had was always focused on how do we get to rope more. That's what they did. It's called roping. Uh, how do we get to rope more? And then finally they reached the age of retirement. And so my mother retires. And then uh, my stepfather's got like 18 months left before he's going to retire. And they're just going to rodeo their faces off. That's all they're going to do for the rest of their lives. That's, that's their plan. And it has a hereditary lung disease. And now he needs a double lung transplant and all of that. Everything that your life has been about is over. That's what I mean. Life happens. And if you haven't experienced anything like that yet, hang on, because you probably will. You're going to want to hope in Christ and not in yourself. So everything changes. Our lives are constantly changing. We go through difficult times. And it begs the question, who is in charge around here? Jesus is the answer to that as well. Look at verse 17. Read the text. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. You see, he's before all things. 
And it's repeated here, but it's not simply for the sake of repeating, but it's to focus on Christ's eternal nature, his deity, his authority. He holds all things together. He's the sustainer of life. He's the governor enforcing the laws of physics. He is what allows the sun to stay put and time to move forward. He is the decider of whether you will breathe tomorrow or you'll need a double lung transplant. I once heard one of my favorite preachers say that because of Jesus, there are no rogue molecules. I love that. You see, there's never a point in time where Anything escapes his capacity to bind and hold together all things in accordance to his plans and purposes. And there also never is a time in your life where anything escapes his capacity to bind and hold together you in accordance with his plans and purposes. So submit to him. He is sovereign. He is the sustainer. He is the answer. Verse 18 says this, it says he is the head of the body, which a church. So submit to him. Verse 17 answered, who's in charge around here in kind of a general sense for the whole world. But verse 18 gets specific. You want to know who's in charge around Redemption Bible Church? It's Jesus. And you thought it was Blair, didn't you? It's easy to say because he's not here today, but he would agree. There are different roles and levels of leadership that exist. They're established by Scripture so that the church can function. But when we get down to brass tacks, Jesus is our head. So what does this mean for us? It means that we are people who submit to his authority. We are people who cannot say, I know the Bible says love, but I can't love them. I know the Bible says be different, be holy, but I can't. It's just too hard. I know the Bible says forgive, but I will never forgive her or him or them. When we submit to Jesus fully, we lay down our right to be offended. We're believers. We're the church. And so the standard by which we are held is different. There are no loopholes in following Christ. We submit our lives to Him daily and repent and seek forgiveness where we fail. But don't worry, because He's good and He loves us and He's coming back for us. He's coming back for the church. You know what he's bringing with him? Justice. Not made up justice, not fake justice, not you didn't give me what I want and that's not justice. Real justice. One day, all that is wrong with the world will be set right by the head of the church. The one who decides what is right and wrong. The one who decides what love is. The one who decides what is good and what is not. He'll be the one. He's in charge around here. He is the answer. Submit to him. Let's look at the rest of verse 18 here. It says, he is the beginning 
the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Paul drives home the preeminence of Christ in this sentence by highlighting that all things find their origin in Christ. It's not just repeating that Jesus is first in position or first as he existed before time began, but here he is first in the sense that the origin, the concept, the design, the essence of everything is found in him. And Paul is saying, even to the extent of resurrection, Christ being firstborn from the dead illustrates the fact that even though he is deity, he is also fully man and experienced death as a man. But he was resurrected through the power of God. He wasn't raised up in a mortal body, though. He was raised in glory with a body that will never experience death again. He is the first among dying people to rise from the grave and be transformed. But fully man does not mean only man. Verse 19 says, In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus was fully God. He possessed total union with both the Father and the Spirit, having in him all the qualities of God's character. He possessed his graciousness, his goodness, his holiness, justice, mercy, love, and all the other qualities of God. This is why Mark 9-7 tells us that at the baptism of Jesus, God the Father spoke audibly where people could hear it, and he said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. He is the son of and all the fullness of God is in him. Listen to him. Submit to him. Because he is the answer. Submitting to the leadership of Jesus sets us on the right path and in the right direction. And many of us have said, yes, yeah, I'll submit, I'll follow. But where? Where are we going? Even unbelievers ask this question. It's asked maybe in a little bit different way, but everyone wants to know where we're going. What's going to happen? Perhaps another way to put it is, what's the meaning of life? What's the point of all of this? Where are we all headed? Verse 20 tells us, Through him to reconcile to himself all things. The whole world, all of its history, from the very first day to the very first to the very last day is barreling down the corridor of time headed for a single destiny reconciliation this might not be a word that we use kind of in our everyday vocabulary but we do use it usually in the context of relationship and that is also how the bible uses it in its most simple form it means to make things right to put things back in balance. And that's exactly what Jesus will do. You see, when he comes back, all things will be balanced, set right, justice to those who reject him, glory to those who love him, correction to this fallen, broken planet that we live in. He'll regenerate it, reconcile it. But for what reason? To what end? 
Well, the verse says there, to himself. Just like we saw earlier in the passage, it is for him and to him. He reconciles everything to himself, and he is our reward. We will be in the presence of Christ, the one who has all the fullness of God in him. And I can't wait. I can't wait to finally see his face. The one that we've been talking about and singing to and preaching about and praying to. I can't wait to see him. I want to ask him a million questions. I want to finally live in totally unadulterated, perfect peace. Peace. That's what he does. He makes peace. Look at the final phrase of our text today. And we're going to end with this. It's verse 20. It says, Making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus allowed himself to be nailed to a Roman cross, beaten, bloodied, and murdered on your behalf. You see, God is holy, and he hates our sin. And he is just, and he must punish our sin. But he is also merciful and gracious, so he takes the punishment. He satisfies his own wrath by sending his son to take on flesh and to stand in my place, to stand in your place because of our sin. This makes God just in the punishment of sin and the justifier by taking the punishment himself in Jesus. He spilled his blood so that you can make peace with God today. Repent from sin, reject it, and believe in the preeminent Savior, Jesus. So when it comes to these big existential questions of life, we remember that He is the visible of the, the visible image of God. He is the firstborn, the source of all things. Jesus is in charge. Jesus is our destiny. Jesus is the answer.